Yo, this is Oz, host and founder of Salinas Underground Podcast. And this is Claudia Melendez Salinas, co-founder of Voices of Monterey Bay. We're only a few days away from the November 3rd election, and if you're a bit like us, you're probably pretty exhausted by this point. Uh, we hope we've noticed that we've teamed up with Voices of Monterey Bay to bring you some political coverage. And you're right, we're exhausted. <laughs> but we're down to the finish line, and this week, we're down to our final interviews with Salinas mayoral candidates Michael Leip and Ernesto Gonzalez, and Ray Montebañor, who's running for District Area 4 in Salinas. I'm, I've been very proud of, the, of our local coverage during this very important election season. While there's been a lot of political coverage of the presidential campaign, local campaigns are not getting as much attention, and this was our way to d contribute to the local discord. We would love to know what you thought of this series. Send us an email at oz at saladvites.org or letters at vom.org. Or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. And now, without further ado... All right, we're back here. We are here now with Michael Leip, running for Salinas mayor. Welcome. Actually, yeah, welcome. Uh, Claudia, I just started without even welcoming you. Welcome. <laughs> we had, uh, you had, we heard you had a long day, Michael. And uh, what the first questions we ask all of our guests is, who are you and why did you decide to run for mayor? Well, thank you both so much for having me. Uh, my name is Michael Leip. I was uh, born July 4th, 1974 in Memorial Hospital. My father playing in a tennis tournament down at Spreckles Park. And uh, my mom went into labor with me, and there, there we have it. So uh, born on the 4th of July here in Salinas. Uh, born and raised, went to Spreckles as a kid. And, and uh, family had, had a family business here for over 75 years locally in the agricultural industry. We had a fertilizer pesticide company and um, employed a lot of people in the city of Salinas over the years. And my family family roots are here and uh, mar married to a wonderful lady, uh, Robin Light. Uh, her family's been here for over 150 years. Um, we're generational residents of Salinas, four kids we're raising here in the city and over the last 30 years, we've noticed the steady decay of our city and the decline of our city. And I don't mean as far as numbers, right? We've increased in population. We've increased in our budget and our spending and everything. But when it comes to our quality of life as residents, and when I say residents, I mean all of the people that live within the city of Salinas, and all of the people that own a business in the city of Salinas and all of the people that work in the city of Salinas that might not necessarily live in town, but they're a part of this community too. And we, I just believe that there has been decades and truly in the last 10 years, reckless leadership inefficient and negligent management of our city of our of every level whether it be financial accountability whether it be housing and redevelopment infrastructure uh, city to business partnership and ultimately what i've seen is a culture within our city where the management looks at what do the residents owe me in order for me to do the job for them rather than what do I owe this city that provides me so much. And so these things have been culminating. I had a baby in March. The next day, our country locked down and arguably the craziest time in the world's history at least for us, yeah. I got in a motorcycle accident here in the city of Salinas, found a couple extra potholes on Abbott Street I didn't know about with my head. By the grace of God, I didn't die and merely broke my femur and uh, came home from the hospital. My brother came over with a tub of ice cream <clears throat> And uh, we sat and talked for a number of hours, him and I and my wife, 
our late mayor passed away here. And we're talking about our city and what we have as an option for leadership. And we didn't see one that was viable for our city. And we come from a, si- a family of service, so to speak. My grandmother was woman in education of California for over 64 years, more than any other woman in the history of California. My grandfather was a senator from New Mexico. And I have a long list of aunts and uncles and cousins that are all teachers. I've always been an entrepreneur out there. I don't have time. I got my kids. I've got to make money. I've got to do this. I got to do that. Right. Very, you know, uh, I always, I, I look at myself as having the intellectual capacity. I understand a lot. I've worked in a lot of different jobs. I've been a restaurant tour. I've been, I moved pipe out in the fields when I was young. I have uh, been a service delivery driver. I've been a realtor. I've been an investment banker. I've been a well driller and all these different things. And I never could quite understand, you know, why is it so hard for me to make that American dream, right? But needless to say, we decided that the city needed a viable option with somebody that can go in. I'm not owned by any any entity. You know, I I think uh, I've spent about... uh, $17,000 $17,000 on this campaign. And You're not, self-financing it? You're not receiving any donations? I, I've from... received donations from people, and it's all public record. And, but I've never received a donation from anybody that would ever dream of thinking that they could decide what what I needed to say vote on or decision. One of my competitors has spent over $200,000 on this campaign. Yeah. That's why I'm running. I'm going to spend 25 and maybe win. Well, and the, I'm that's curious. I'm interested because you seem to, you know, coming from a business background, have experience there. And okay, we were just talking about COVID, how it might, it's definitely the craziest time in our lifetime. But what can uh, the city do? Because um, again, we still don't know how bad it's. You know, we know the city's t- uh, budget was already getting affected. You know, there was already a deficit. It's going to increase even more. What can the city do with very little resources to help its small businesses? The sit. <clears throat> what the city needs to do for our small businesses is, is it, it's it goes back to that mentality I was talking about of how the city culture is. <clears throat> Our city's been so mismanaged and recklessly spent money that it just didn't have. And I mean, we can, look, we can talk about it forever. Measure X money, $107 million sold for $38 million today to finish Old Town, which they didn't have the funds to complete, right? So they've crippled us for the next 28 years <laughs> and we have no infrastructure money, right? So when you look at businesses with this mentality and this position, the city's been in the management looks at every single way of how much can we tax out of the gate these businesses, how much how much in fees can we charge and how close to balancing our budget can we get by offsetting it through business fees our city is not a partner to our businesses they are a problem and it's a mentality that's dictated from the top and so what our city has to do is minimize the cost on the front end for businesses and do everything possible to help these businesses be successful out of the gate by promoting a very uh, positive culture of what can we do for you to help your business be successful and set our businesses up for the long-term organic growth of revenue stream. In the end of the day, these small businesses, medium-sized businesses, large businesses that come here we can create an attraction to businesses to be here, to attract our agricultural community that continues to push to our surrounding towns because the city wants to charge them too much on the front. They push out and all of a sudden people are going to the other communities for work instead of right here in Salinas where we could be generating that tax revenue. And why shouldn't we be? We're providing all the services for these surrounding towns. 
So um, sounds like you would try to make the city, the government more attractive to businesses as one of your platforms. What other platforms do you have to improve what the city is doing right now in general, not just for businesses? In, in, in general, I look at our city system and the way it operates now as being completely broken at every level. So it's really hard to pinpoint, but I've really, uh, I rolled out on my, my website, electlife.com, Facebook, YouTube, and whatnot, a six-part series of a specific plan. I'm the only candidate that's put out a specific six-part series plan for dealing with the city of Salinas, two-year, two four-year, and six-year. I'm the only one that's made a multi-year commitment, I believe. I know that one person running for sure already has a, a committee established look it up. It's at the public record as well to run for supervisor in two years. So it's really unfortunate. Somebody's running for mayor for two years. It's like puts our city on pause for two years just so they can go and run for supervisor. Yeah. So I'm looking at uh, a, a financial accountability is at the top of the list. And as mayor, I plan, I plan on uh, bringing to the, the city council forensic audit of the last five years, city financials, so we can determine the utility of the dollars we're spending. What is efficient? What is not efficient? What has been a bust? What has been successful? And we need to quickly get this assessed because of this $19 million shortfall we're coming up on. And that's just one, one aspect. It's a huge aspect, but believe it or not, it's a small aspect, right? So with that said, uh, you know, we've got that piece, right? Well, we've got housing and redevelopment, another piece of the a puzzle for me that I'm looking at, where we have an infrastructure, and this is where all these tie together. Not one is more important than the other, but we've got an infrastructure deficit. We can't fix our roads or sidewalks. Our city spent all that money recklessly. It's gone. They sold the revenue stream. They thought that they were good at investment banking or something. I don't get it. They sold our $107 million for our infrastructure repairs, our sewer subsystems and our water allocations, all this stuff that they've just recklessly, you know, thrown away. So the way we close that gap is through housing and redevelopment. And I, I plan on establishing a committee, which all this has been published for months, by the way, mm -hmm. it's all online. Uh, that I'll, I'll, I will challenge each one of the city council members to form a committee within their district to identify blighted and rundown neighborhoods that need infrastructure. And what I'd like to do is create a new way of thinking and a new type of partnership where there can be a long-term revenue stream for the individual property owners, but to develop a partnership, a co-op. I look at like uh, Kmart, Kmart facility, for instance, over, over on Davis. Yeah. Right. Empty, blighted, strip mall. It's like, you know, there's some great businesses in there. The bakery in there. I got the Fujiyama. We got a number of different stores, good stores. But are they attractive? Do we do those attract us to really want to go over there and see what's in there and go shop? Or is it kind of dingy and dark and kind of old and dilapidated? And I believe, you know, you look at the houses right behind there, all the common wall houses, uh, very inefficiently built. Uh, very underserving people parking on the lawn, sidewalks, cramming multiple families into one home, 1,200 square feet. People don't want to live this way. New partnership where we co-op this stuff together and we find a long-term revenue stream for each individual owner to, to provide profitability for everyone instead of a developer or a builder or these fat cats at the top. Let's partner with the individual landowner, the developer, and the city with the property management in between and build amazing commercial on the bottom, go up with not low-income housing, but great housing with amazing amenities that are co-op that people can't get on their own, but cooperatively and say a condominium, one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom, you do a five, seven story deal with amazing facilities and amenities, rooftop bar, restaurant, you know, Palapa, maybe, you know, beautiful sunset views of our valleys. Give our people what they want. Give us more housing. We can do low income housing, but why can't we do 
great high-level housing, medium-range housing, with amenities, with uh, a, an organically growing tax base. And we roll, what happens is, is you go back to these different neighborhoods, their streets are a disaster. We got no uh, internet connectivity. Right? Our, 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 we're not living in the 21st century and we don't have the money to repair it. So we need to incentivize developments like this to be able to roll our infrastructure budget so we don't have the money to into the development and it resets it. That's going to be one way that we close that gap. So that's another little piece. But then I look at, you know, my, my biggest thing that I, I look at for me personally with this, personally, I can't make decisions. It's collectively all the residents. Sometimes I might be doing something that I don't think is as important, but it's what the residents want. But homelessness to me is my most important thing, and it's what's really motivated me. My wife and I do a lot of work with the shelter over on Alisal Street that, um, you know, provides homes or a warm roof for people that are homeless and a lot of kids in there, um, a lot of kids in there, a lot of good people. And the lady told us a couple months back, she said, you know, we've been doing about a year and a half. She said, so what organization you and your wife work with? We don't have an organization. She said, two of you do more than everybody combined. We bring diapers and wipes and food a couple of times a week and blankets and clothes. And and the more and more we got into, we got into it with this group called They Are One, another group that does things not to be publicized, but they do it because they love people. They love our community. The more and more I we got into doing this, the more and more we're vested in it. Like, oh my gosh, you know, we got such a problem here. And I look at what our city does for homeless, and they have no plan, none. And they they they're so detached. They're so they show how uninformed they are on our displaced population. That's a bit, That's probably the main reason why I'm running for mayor because there's a solution. And if you spoke with people like maybe Kimberly Craig, who is also running, and also McShane, who is on the council, and other people, they will tell you that they do have a plan. And among the plans is buying, for instance, the uh, the hotel that is by the Highway 101. They there there's the new center that was just built in downtown Chinatown, and there's other things that they have in the pipeline. They have no doubt been very slow in building, but but it, you know, it's part of a plan. What would you say to things like that? I would say that, um, <clears throat> for instance, with the Good Night Inn over there, yeah, it's a backroom, closed-door negotiation, and they are not releasing any of the details. Um, I tried to actually... McShane happens to be my councilman. I uh, called him on this because I looked at face value of it, and I thought, okay, you're buying the good night in. Okay, that's about 2% of the situation. Now, what's the other 98%? Who's the third party that's going to be facilitating this property? And what is their, what is their success rate at rehabilitating displaced population? You know, what is the structure going to be? Are these people local? Are they from out of town? What's their vested interest in the city? What's your plan, Steve? How are these? How are you going to rehabilitate these people, Steve? He, didn't, he had no idea. He thinks, oh, it's, it's 104 rooms, so we'll be able to at least house 104 people, right? I'm like, no, you should be able to house about 600 in that facility. Okay, but the thing is, their plan is to serve us a symptom. They want to put a Band-Aid on a laceration that's gushing blood everywhere, and the Band-Aid's not even catching the blood. But he's running for office, and I'm going to run on this, and I'm going to advertise to the constituents, oh, look at this great plan. But what is the plan? Because the Salvation Army is the greatest organization at, at rehabilitating displaced population. Are they in this discussion? They're not. 
Is the Methodist Church in there? Is Dorothy's Kitchen in there? Is They Are One in there? These are all the local groups that are vested into our displaced population, and none of them have a seat at the table, and it's a closed-door situation. So I believe our leadership gets thrown a problem, and they scramble to that problem, and they don't have any resources. So here, they didn't have a plan. The state comes up with the $600 million to buy hotels or what have you for housing homeless people. And that comes up, and because we didn't have a plan, now they start throwing darts. Well, what can we buy? Oh, the good night in. Well, let's go pay $7 million above the appraised value of that property. So who owns that property, and who's getting the additional $7 million? And the other problem I had is, did you talk to the Hampton Inn, Steve? Oh, yeah. They love it. They think it's a great idea. Oh, really? Okay, let me call you back. I got something to do. Click. I go down to the Hampton Inn. Can I talk to the manager, please? Manager comes out, happens to be one of the owners, and he manages it, partners with the Hampton Inn and the Otoni family. I said, you know, I'm running for mayor. My name is Mike Leip. I don't want to make you uncomfortable. I'll leave if you want me to, but I had a question for you. He said, go ahead. I said, has anyone, anyone from the city of Salinas come down and talk to you about buying the good night in next door, talk to you about putting a homeless shelter there? And he looked at me. It was two days after the article come out in the whatever the news cycle. So not one person from the media or the city has stepped foot in here, made a phone call to us to ask us anything. So, but we do have a problem with their valuation of that property. And so I got back on the phone and I said, thank you very much. Really nice to talk to you, you know, running for mayor. I'd love to, you know, you live in town. I love your boat. <laughs> right. Go. Hey, Steve. I just got one more question for you. Who'd you talk to down at the Hampton Inn? Oh, we talked to somebody. Who? Okay. Who, Steve? So my this is my deal. I don't think Steve's a bad guy. I don't think I don't think our leaders are are bad people, but they have no plan. Because the the groups like the Salvation Army get excluded because they worship. They worship Jesus. And for me, I believe the plan is, I don't care who you are. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what you look like. I don't care what gender you are. If you've got solutions, if you want to discuss solutions, you're in the room. And we're going to solve this problem. There's a, there's a solution to this. But what they're putting on the table is not it the way it's written. So you did mention that buying the 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 hotel is is just a band-aid. What and and that that's not the issue, that that's just a symptom. So what's actually the cause and how would you fix it? Or how would you address it? The the cause is is a number of things. I look at our displaced population in three ways. We've got some people that are really good people, great people. And they've been a victim of this wage gap that we've been suffering for the last 30 years. Had the same average wage in this county we had 30 years ago, but how much does our health insurance cost? Well, back then it was free. Now it's $1,500 a month. Mm -hmm. How much was rent? Well, it was like $325 a month, and now it's $2,500 a month. How much was gas? Oh, 95 cents a gallon. Well, now it's $3 a gallon. And these people are coming into the homeless shelters with kids, just like me and my wife, good people. They can't afford rent anymore. So we've got that section, right? Really good hard. We got another section of the homeless population. There's another really good group of people. And these people have knowingly chosen a path of addiction and alcoholism. And, and they're good people too. You know, they've made this choice to be this way, but we got to deal with that. And the third part of it is people that are mentally ill, that that are the true victims of, of our poor leadership that we have left behind. And those are people we're going to have to take care of the rest of their lives, and we're going to have to make that sacrifice, and there's a way to do it. 
But what has to happen is we need to get to the root causes. These people that choose alcoholism and addiction, we have to be able to provide a new type of structure where we teach people how to live again. You live homeless for a while. You forget how to make a bed. You forget how important it is to get up and get clean in the morning, have a meal, go to work. So we have to have interpersonal counseling. We have to have, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and, and Narcotics Anonymous as a part of this solution. You know, we have to have uh, uh, vocational training. And let me tell you, there's a lot of available jobs around here. Hmm. And, and so the Salvation Army, for instance, is fully supported 100% by rehabilitated alcoholics and addicts. I don't know if you're aware of that fully 100%. So they come to your house, a guy driving graduated from a program, he's sober. The guy that's there is in the program and he's helping and he's learning how to live life again. And they, their success rate's three times higher than the next best. And what they do is you get up in the morning, you make your bed, you keep a clean closet, no dust, you got to bounce a quarter off that bed, and it's got to bounce. And you go and you go to work for the day, and you work your butt off. You just work your butt off. And you come back and get and get three cuts a day, good meals, too. They got a cafeteria. People donate food, whole nine yards. And I tell you what, they teach you how to live again. And what happens, what we need to do here in the city of Salinas for this homelessness problem, in one way or another, I'm either going to win as mayor, we're going to move forward with it, or we're not, and I'm going to move forward with it. I got a platform now, and we're going to use it to make change. So we need to build one facility that's like a funnel. It's got five or 600 beds. And we need groups like the Salvation Army that are facilitating this because they know how to do it. Then we start enforcing, hey, you can't pitch your tent on the street. You start scooping everybody up. You put them into the funnel, and you determine who's mentally ill and who can make the choice pull the mentally ill out. We build a separate facility. We take care of them. Rest of their lives, we have to do it. People are going to come out of that funnel and some of them are going to get better. Very few of them. A lot of them are going to go right back out to the street. And guess what? We scoop them up again and we put them in the funnel. And we keep doing that and we'll keep doing that until eventually the bleeding has stopped. And then it starts to go back. We'll never eradicate homelessness because there's going to be people that are just not going to make the choice to conform to society. Do you actually believe that people choose to live in the streets? Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, let me ask you something. I know some of them personally. How, how would you um, how would you fund these programs when you're talking about a nineteen billion nineteen million dollar gap? But you know, you talk about counseling, which I think it's you know personally, I think it's a great idea of counseling and support. Absolutely. And how, so, how do you fund that? Well, this community, why? why I love it so much, I believe is an example to the world of what humanitarianism is. I don't know. My favorite, my favorite event of all time, every single year, I love it. It's my favorite thing. I'd rather go there than Disneyland. Monterey County Fair in King City. You go to this fair, and they have the, the auction, livestock auctions on Saturday. But unfortunately, this year, they weren't able to do it to the capacity where the kids really didn't get the benefit. Mm -hmm. You go there, and you'll never see this on the news. You'll never see it in the media. These farmers here put millions of dollars in these kids' college funds every year. Every year. It's amazing. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And uh, you see these fires out here. You got millionaires lined up with their equipment, with manpower, and they're chasing the fire. They're millionaires. They're dirty. They're out there, and they're saving their neighbors. And that kind of, uh, that kind of um, culture that we have here for humanitarianism and the love that our whole community has for us to me is is just simply unique and one of a kind
And this community, they don't like the homeless population. They don't, they don't like the situation and the, how this city has so mismanaged itself into the, the place we're at with homelessness. Mm-hmm. These people are willing to put money into this mm-hmm. and, and, and to fund this. Mm-hmm. The problem is we have people spending $200,000 on a mayor's race, which is virtually a volunteer position. I make $18,000 if I run for mayor. If I if I win, I get 18. I'm not retiring on $18,000. Why are we spending two hundred dollars for it? And that's going to tell you why these great people of our agricultural community will not endow that money, but they will if I'm there because they trust me. They know that I'm not going to squander that money, but they can't trust anybody else in the city. Mm. Could well, you um, go ahead? Oh, no, no, you go. No, I've been taking so many. Well, I, cause I, well, I, I want to make sure I, I answer or ask this correctly because getting back to the budget, it's, because the city has done multiple studies, you know, they funded a lot of people to look into the budget and say, what, what, what's going on? And what inevitably is going to come out is that you are spending over 50% on public safety. And again, I want to be careful with this because it comes at a time where there are national questions about, again, funding police. But I'm, I'm trying to just say, I mean, public safety in general, because it's inevitable that that comes up when they've done these studies. They say, hey, you're spending over 50 percent of your budget on these two sections. But it is also very unpopular to say, hey, we need to look at our police budget again, because just the police is 47 percent. And like I've said before, just naturally, even if that was the parks budget, it would warrant a, 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 a looking over, you know, but how could you possibly even sit down with the police unions or people and say hey we all need to agree this is a lot of money we're spending you know this is not a an anti-police thing at all and again the timing is kind of strange because it's it's a national question now but locally it's like we're saying it's really expensive and so would you be is it possible i guess to sit down with the police unions and ask these tough questions of, of, hey, we may need to cut this budget because it's just we don't have the money. Every dollar spent within our city is going to be scrutinized. And the you know public safety is the biggest part of the budget. So yeah. it, it obviously has to be scrutinized. With that said, I mean um, – you know, our, our our crime has come down the last three years consecutively, consistently, at a low level, but it's 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 coming down. Um, with that said, I mean, uh, I'm glad that our chief has worked hard to maybe implement some things uh, to do that. But at the same token, we also got to look at our chief and say, hey, we're one of the most dangerous cities per capita in, in, in the state of California and the nation for that matter. So I was very glad that she's been able to maybe make a, some strides on a little, little bit of uh, relief on our crime. But at the end of the day, it's still bad, you know? Yeah. So we're spending all this money yet. We're still not achieving a, you know, safe community in the standard of all the other cities in this state of California. So it has to be scrutinized. I I believe that there are different partnerships that we can do. Um, I mean, we saw an example of that the other day when they made a bust on that murder ring that was going on the seven murders that happened. These kids, you know, the federal government played a big part in that. And I think that there's some partnership that we can have part of our police budget. If you look at the overtime that's being paid to officers, right? Well, then you got officers. What, what are officers good at, right? Well, they're good at serving and protecting the public servants, right? Mm. But what are they maybe not good at? And what I would say is they're probably not good at reports and paperwork and things like that. Right. So, So I believe that we need to look at the different processes within our law enforcement or what is it? The, uh, 
City services of Salinas, or they got a new name. Oh yeah, right. Police services. Police services. Police police services. Police, police services yeah. And then you don't want to say service. It's got to be services because it's got different connotation yeah. in Canada or something like that. So anyway, but <laughs> another. I, I like what they've done in there, but we need to look at maybe we need some more uh, maybe administrative assistance. That not to say that it would be a low, lower level of pay, but more efficient where we're not having to pay overtime to our officers who are being overworked that have a firearm on their side working overtime. I think that we need to be able to hire some more officers. We need to hire some administrative assistants, get the paperwork out of the officer's hands. We got technology. Everything's transcribed. Everything's recorded. We can have assistants doing that, allow our officers more time with their families and more time for rest so they can be more vibrant and more alert in these incredibly sensitive situations with a firearm on their side. And in the, in the, in an instance, there's another big thing that's on a national level too with this, but very, I mean, applicable at the local level, 100% is I believe we need to add social workers to our law enforcement not to replace any officers, but they need to be added. So in a sense, we need to refund, not defund our law enforcement. And we need to send these social workers out on the domestic calls accompanied by an officer with a firearm for protection, right? But we don't need our our beat cops in the middle of the throes of passion of a husband and wife you know, in a situation when they got a gun, I mean, it's like yeah. get the social worker in there. Let's be let's let's have real conversations about what we need to do. Let's all the national hype and all this president. Who are you voting for president? That's all I need to know. It's like, <laughs> well, well, I'm running for the mayor of Salinas here. Okay, yeah. give me the sanctity of privacy because <laughs> our elections won't work if we're not private. Yeah. My ideology on that is not going to affect. Because being mayor, it's not a party deal, you know. Yeah. Well, the the the, the issue has become political for better or for worse. I'm not gonna, you right. know. Obviously, we're not gonna ask you that question. Right. I mean, I really right. not going to. Speaking but, of that, next question: Who are you voting? Speaking of that, well, what I want actually is like I do want to switch gears a little bit here and ask you a question we've been asking a lot of our most of our uh, guests, and is. Uh, what do you consider great leadership? Who are leaders you admire? Uh, leaders that I admire. Or tell me what good leadership is, either one. You know, I, I look to good leadership. I look to people that uh, that are honest. People that speak with passion and love. Um, I, I believe good lead, a good leader to me, the definition of, of, of a good leader, a great leader is one that understands that they're not great at everything. The ones that can seek out those that are great at the things that are of the shortcomings of that leader and can inspire them to see the vision and want to help. A great leader is going to say, you know, I'm not really good at this, but you know what? Claudia is really good at this. Claudia, do you see my vision? Can you help me? And that's a true leader. Hmm, that's great. I know that's what Abe Lincoln did, right? And many others. I would imagine. I'm just thinking about I'm not a big history buff. I mean, mm-hmm. I know uh, Abraham Lincoln was the founder of the Republican Party and uh, ended the slavery in our country. That's, and they call him Honest Abe. So he's honest. <laughs> they said he is, so he must <laughs> right, have been. According to his nickname. <laughs> well, I have a, a, a question uh, you mentioned earlier about, again, like Kmart doing infill-type housing and all that and more market-level stuff. And how can we, 
because yeah, I, I like that. I like that idea. But I, I feel that as the Bay Area gets more and more unaffordable, and I keep mentioning my my obsession with the train coming, where finally, you know, within a decade, we'll have a daily train going from Salinas to the Bay Area. And so I think that makes Salinas more even more accessible to people in the Bay Area. And if we do start doing this kind of infill housing or just even single family housing that's going to go up in the north side anyway, how can the city protect its current citizens, its fourth generation citizens from this potential onslaught if you will sorry bay area people but um you know what can we do so we're not forced out and ha- and forced to move to merced or fresno or bakersfield which again no disrespect to those cities either but is it possible for the city to help its citizens if when or if this happens i mean I, absolutely i um you know it, it comes back to my job creation agenda item, which <clears throat> our city, we, we've seen them come and go. I mean, you, you look at household credit, HSBC Capital One, right? Well, back 20, 15, 20 years ago, household credit, or I think it had become HSBC by then, <clears throat> came to the city and they wanted to build a mega facility and, and have another 30,000 jobs here. And at that time, that's when the city started to really transform into this really getting into a reckless spending, right? And so they started to have to start opening the cost up for doing business in Salinas to help offset their reckless spending, right? So they they told household or HSBC that they weren't interested in giving them a tax break to build this, you know, and add 30,000 more jobs here. So they decided to, they built one in Virginia and one in Vegas and split it between the two and shipped those jobs over there. And eventually they left here completely yeah. gone, right? And we got Firestone out there. I mean, how long did that place operate? Not very long, a year or so before they moved out here. I got Taylor Farms built a big facility down in Gonzales. You know, you got Church Brothers built a big facility, man packing down in Gonzales. You got facilities down in King City got them going over to Watsonville we're shoving all these businesses everywhere in the meantime you know I look at something well we didn't our city invest in an electric car company they were going to manufacture cars 10 years ago I think one one of the people running for mayor here was a part of that decision as well car they they invested they their, their city squandered millions of dollars on this green energy deal, they had federal government, once again, no plan, right? Federal government has this money for spending, so they grasped at straws, made a poor decision, invested in this deal. Now, the city leased a property right next to our family business on the corner of Romy and, and uh, Abbott. There was a car dealership, used to be Volkswagen back in the day, right? Well, the city, we've been trying to rent that for our company for more storage for our equipment and make it a, a better facility for the city and for us. And, and uh, boy, the city came in there and outbid us on that sucker. Well, they spent, they just got out of that lease here, uh, I think, within the last year, year and a half. Right? Well, they leased that property for 10 years. They had to pay for that property, $20,000 a month for that electric car company that never made one car. <laughs> That is one example of total reckless negotiation and investment. And it's funny that you mentioned that because when you kept saying, you know, reckless spending and et cetera, I I wanted to ask you for an example. You gave a perfect one. So, Uh, one, and I I mean, we look right now, we'll look at one right now, Old Town. Now, I've seen what happened out in front of Patria. It's beautiful. I like it but not at the expense of the next 28 years of our infrastructure for our sidewalks and streets throughout the entire city. You know, what are you people doing down there? In the meantime, we got our city attorney strong arming and suing our local businesses, squeezing them, trying to make them sell their property at a cheap value because they want to consolidate the ownership of old town. Another example of corruption in my eyes you know, it, it, these are the things. I mean, and we can go on. We can go. Now that I'm a, a contender here, people present themselves and they present information that shows maybe things not in a good light for some individuals within our city management and leadership. 
you know, and that has to come to an end. We don't have any more time. We're $19 million short because of COVID. That's this year. What do you think is going to happen in January? Because we're in the rears on sales tax, right? Property taxes are still coming in. People are going to pay their property taxes, maybe, hopefully. But the variable sales tax, and there's none. We closed our town, closed our county. We got, we're getting held hostage by this Ed Moreno because our city leadership either doesn't understand the power channel to understand that the county doesn't determine who does business in the city of Salinas. The city does. Right? And I know that because I'm probably the only person in the history of the city of Salinas that opened up a restaurant legally without a health permit. And we learned 10 years ago when I had my restaurant that happened. The health department learned and I learned who, who's got power. And it wasn't the county. Right? So come July or, excuse me, January, our sales taxes are going to be nothing. So $19 million short this year. And it's going to be more next year. And then what? Are we going to open? Or are we going to keep punting this political football back and forth and in the meantime ruin our children, ruin the fabric of our community, and put all of our businesses out of business? You know, and, and that's the risk that we got to start looking at these different things. And I look as mayor um, in, in one way or another, going to have to find out the right way. But we're going to have a disclaimer on every single business in the city of Salinas. And it's going to say this business will not be held liable for any type of illness you may have contracted here unless it's foodborne. And what we're going to do then is advise our businesses. We're going to put that. We're going to advise our businesses to, you know, open open up safely. Uh, we advise to the guidelines of the CDC or whatever the authority is that's doing it. However... If you want to go back to your capacity, say, for instance, as a bar restaurant, pre-COVID, you don't want to have masks at your facility, fine. People can choose their health risk and say, I'm not going to that business. I'm not going to support it. And you can tell the business, if you want to have a 25% occupancy, everybody wears masks, got plexiglass everywhere, good luck. And we'll let... The people, the residents, not the government, decides what's best for our health. Hmm. These are these are some of these things that I feel we have to start looking into. So don't you think it's a little bit con- counterintuitive that you want to be part of the government as a mayor, but you still want to say it's not the government who tells you what to do, it's the people? I mean, isn't that a little bit contradictory? I would say no, because we are a nation of the people. And the people, the people are the ones that determine, and you know, the way I see it, it's like the president of the United States can't come and tell our governor how he's going to do things in our state, right? Well, our governor can't tell our county what our county is going to do. And the county can't tell our city. So power in, in America starts at the local level and goes up, not at the top and come down. And of course, this is a collectiveness that we're all going to have to come through, but we're going to have to make that determination. And I think right now, a majority of our residents want our city open. I think a majority of our residents want our children in school. And I think a majority of our residents definitely want us to be mindful of our senior population. That's really the ones at risk. But, you know, we got 85, 87 people, maybe 89 people now that have died of COVID in Monterey County. That's a tough curve to flatten. And when you look at it, if we're in a pandemic that's going to kill everybody and we're all at risk, how come not one of those has been a homeless person that's living on top of one another, not wearing masks? So I've got some real questions to our, you know, I think there's a lot of the science community that exemplifies some of what I'm talking about, but it gets suppressed. And there's a lot of the science community that says other things that gets advertised. And so we're all out here determining, being that we're the scientists and whatnot. But the reality is we understand our own health concerns. And we've all been touched by COVID directly. At this point, each and every one of us has been touched directly by it, I guarantee And the only people I've known that have died are people that have drank themselves to death. 
And that's odd to me. And I, I just, my kids aren't going to school. And school for a third grader is not nuclear science. It's how to play with other children constructively, understand and learn schedule and importance of being on time, completing your task and accomplishments, whatever that might be. And that might be the kickball game out on the playground. And right now we're destroying our kids every single day. Why? Because some elderly people want that ability to go outside. So, you know, with, you know, it's like, well, just shelter in place. If you're at risk, shelter in place. You know, wear your mask at home alone if that's what makes you safe. But we got to stop destroying the fabric of our community. I hear you. I think that there's a lot of concern out there in the community about COVID and what is done, what is done. Um, and I, and there's, and there's been calls in some parts of the country to reopen the economy. There's also been lots of reports about how th when things reopen, people don't come out because they're just, people are just scared. So it's not really that the economy is not open. It is open in a lot of states in in the eastern part of the United States and people still not coming out. So I think that is one of those things that have to be balanced out because yes, we can say we're going to reopen, right? But what if people don't want to come out and we really won't be able to see that in California until until the the economy is reopened so to speak like you say with air quotes, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think I think that the bigger point is is that We need to take that out of the decision-making of the government. These executive orders, I mean, when this thing first happened, I remember thinking, oh, that's a bunch of hogwash, right? And, you know, in my mind, you know, and then, you know, because I just had a baby. Just had a baby. I was at the hospital. We were the first ones to go through the tent at Memorial, the COVID tent, right? Get checked. Walked into the into the ER once we went through. Now, I don't know if you've ever been into the ER at Memorial, but it's usually, usually uh, asses and elbows in there, right? It's packed. We walk in, there's two people in there, empty. I look at the guy, I go, hey, is it a little slow in here today? We're going in to have a baby, right? A little slow? Uh, yeah, we've never ever seen this like this in the history of the hospital. Nobody there. So every day I go take my take my son to daycare, you know, daycare, you know, it's a tight knit group. And then I drive home and I come by the hospital every day. Every day I come do the same routine just to see empty, empty, empty. Our hospitals are empty. They've been empty. And, and, and so the first the first few weeks I remember then then they then they wrapped up all the playground equipment a week later. So I just had the baby. I take the kids down to the park. All of a sudden, now they say you can't play at the park. No, I'm going, oh, man, this is, I, I don't know if I believe all this stuff, right? So that, But every night I go outside out the back, and listen to the birds, any dead birds laying around. You know, what's the first thing when a pandemic? Like birds die, right? <laughs> like birds start acting crazy and flying into fences and stuff. And I'm like, well, if the virus affects the birds, yes, but this virus is affecting humans. <laughs> well, you know, I, I understand that. I understand that. But, you know, you think of the, I think of like the birds, right? The birds. Like if there's something crazy, if there's a pandemic, the animals are going to start going goofy, right? Earthquake, you got cats jumping around. The, and animals have an intuitive nature, right? So, but now we're, we're seven months in. And like I said, we've each been touched by COVID and we understand it individually and we understand our risks me i have no risk with it my children no risk my mother-in-law been through cancer chemo some other things she, she got a little risk you know she she needs to be careful you know she needs to take precaution for her health until there's a vaccine when there's a vaccine i don't need a vaccine i'm not at risk You know, so there, I think that there's, I think that there's been a lot of politicization. I think people go, well, there's infection rate. What about, well, what is the infection rate? What does that mean? So we tested, you know, five times more people and we got three times more infections. So in actuality, the infection rate comes down because we're doing way more tests 
But what does that infection rate mean? Does that are is those people are those people that are sick or asymptomatic? Are they on respirators and dying? Are they, you know, so there's so much, you know, they put out a statistic on TV, one that we've never, ever seen before in the history of the world on news, infection rate and the amount of deaths. But they don't tell you that over 600,000 people die a year of heart disease because of McDonald's and Burger King and Jack in the Box, places like that. So when we start to put things into perspective, you never want to look at death and say, well, that's a good number. I mean, how insensitive does that sound, right? But we have to put it in context of 340 million people in this country. And we got to also look at who's dying and what other things are involved in that death. A lot of minorities, a lot of black people, a lot of Latinos are dying. A lot more than than people that white people, uh, and I think that that's a big concern for minorities and people of color. And the city and the county is seventy uh, percent Latino in the city, fifty percent in the county. Do you think those concerns would be your concerns as a mayor of a city that would be leading this population? Absolutely, anything that has to do with the residents of the city is definitely a concern of the mayor's. But I'd also revert back to, I mean, in seven months' time, we've had, what, 87 people die in the Monterey County? 91. 91. So it's up to 91. Yeah. Right? And 91, it's, you know, we don't, I don't like anybody dying, but what else did those people have besides COVID that died? Yeah. And, you know, and not, not that to minimize it. I don't want to minimize yeah. the deaths. That's not what I'm trying to do here. But what I'm trying to do is exemplify that. We didn't have an E. coli outbreak in our romaine this year. Like, so if these people, maybe they die of congestive heart failure or something and they had COVID that helped induce that. Well, maybe, you know, if these people ate a Caesar salad or something, the same thing would have happened if it had E. coli in it. Right? What My point I'm trying to make is so many... I would say I would say an overwhelming majority of these people, the writing was on the wall for the number of days they had left to begin with. And I think that's a well a point well taken. No, no, no. And that's that's a point well taken. I guess that also what I what what I've been hearing from scientists talk when they talk about these, and I do I'm a scientist. I do listen to what scientists say. I think they're right. kind of like I'm 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 a I'm a I'm a nerd because of the uh uh, regarding that, is that it is not only the death we should be looking at; it's also the long-term health effects that people are suffering. And people, you know, the the, the the if people cannot work for a year or two years because their lungs have been compromised, then we're affecting the economy because people are not as productive. And do we want to have a nation of people who cannot be as productive because they are, have been now damaged long-term by COVID? And I think that that's one thing that gets lost in the conversation sometimes and that's why i wanted to bring it uh, and up and that's a great point of it but i you know with that said it's um understanding that there can be some long-term effects from this now um I, i've known people that have gotten it and and, and they're f- fine now um i also uh you know people i'm directly related with a, you know another gentleman that had it and you know he had some other ailments out uh diabetes, degenerative uh, uh, disease in his in his leg. He was really overweight at one time in his skinny. Now, well, he was out for a month. Yeah. You know, he it took him a month to get over this. Yeah, it was it was a sick. And it, I'm not. Uh, I definitely wouldn't deny that COVID exists. But what I would say is that the amount of damage, see, because we haven't seen it yet, and you look at the long term effect. Yeah. The long-term effect on our children and on us that are, you know, i got to watch myself now. I'm 46 years old, so I feel like I'm 25 in my head. But, but you know, middle age, younger, our lives are destroyed right now. Absolutely destroyed. Our cities are going to be bankrupt. So, please the elderly community 
that has the choice to shelter in place. The elderly that has the choice to put on a mask if they feel they need to. You know, there's a lot of science behind that too, because the deal with science is science is wrong like 95% of the time, right? Until they're right, right? Science is a test. You know, you've always like, okay, we think this, okay, we think this, we think this, we think this, right? You go through a, a test, right? A hypothesis. Right. And you got all these tests. And when I say that, I don't say that in a, in a sense of failure. It's a sense of accomplishment for science. They're wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong. And then bang, we got it. Right. That's how science works. And who's the best at science in the world? America. United States of America, because we have a landscape and a culture here of, of, you know, being, you know, ingenuity and, and, and we've got a great educational system that we've built over these decades and centuries. And our system is just the most amazing system in the world. It's why so many people opposed to what you might see in the media, millions and millions of people trying to come here every year. And they're not doing that because we're a bad nation. They're doing that because we're a great nation. And so, you know, my point of that is science has been wrong about this COVID thing a lot along this path. And now we're at a point where we're going to start to see the long-term effect of lockdowns and how devastating it's going to be for us, for our kids, for our educational system. How do we get our kids back in school now? We got, you know, half of the country afraid that they're going to die if they come out because the media is saying they're going to die if they come out and don't put on a mask. We're all going to die unless there's a vaccine. There's all that there's, how are these people supposed to not be fearful that might not have had the mom that I had that taught me that you question the rule makers. That's what you do, you know? And, and so here we've got, you know, these restaurants, I want to go to the salad shop. I love those guys down there and I want to go there and make my own salad because I can. And if you feel you can't, we'll call them up and they'll make it for you and bring it to you outside or they'll deliver it to your house. There's options. But in here in America, people are empowered by inalienable rights given to us by God. That's, the residents of Salinas. And that's what I look to bring to the city of Salinas to be that we can make our choices and we're going to get stronger as a community together. All of us. Well, and then to, to wrap it up here, one of my, we have a, a book list that we're creating for everybody uh, that is running. We, we, we ask them what, what, what books have you either read recently or have you read throughout your life that have influenced you that we could add to this book list. And this book list again is available on bookshop.org and uh, yeah. And you could just click on it and see all the books, but anyway, what books have influenced you or that you've read recently? You know, one that's come to mind, actually, it's funny you mentioned that I, I I'm, 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 I haven't been a huge book reader in my past. Uh, I read read for information more than anything. But uh, one that really comes to mind is Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. In today's time. That's a great book. It, you know, I remember reading it back in high school. We watched the movie and it was so corny, right? So low budget. And we're like, oh, that's crazy. That'll never happen. Well, what are we living in right now? They're burning books. They're burning our history. They're burning. There's things being scrubbed out everywhere. They're trying to get rid of information about our history. And you know what? Good history, bad history. It's all, it's all good history because of the lessons we learn. And I see that happen. So that, that, that would be a book that I, really, I've been looking at going to read it again, to be quite honest. Yeah. That's it's sometimes we find comfort on good old books, right? Yeah, I like that. So for the very last uh, question for you, um, you want to make your last pitch. This is going to be your last pitch to Salinas voters. Why do they why should they vote for you to be the next mayor of Salinas? Again, Mike Leip running for mayor. I'm from Salinas and I'm for Salinas. 
Together, we're going to move Salinas forward for our future generations. I'm here to end the corruption and the backdoor deals in the city of Salinas. I'm the only candidate that hasn't taken the big donor funds controlled by a special interest. I'm the only one, except for maybe Ernesto. Ernesto's a nice man. I want to have a cup of coffee with Ernesto. But uh, I'm the only one, and I'm the only one that's published a six-part series of specifics on how our city needs to move forward. And the others, I'm glad that they've been able to borrow it and, and their things since I published it, because a lot of them are talking about my published plan. Um, but uh, I'm I'm also, lastly, the only one that's committed to six years of, of mayor, because it won't get done in two years. And I haven't formed a committee to run by supervisor, and there's another one in this race that has. So I'm Mike Life running for mayor. Vote Mike Life. <laughs> Open for business. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.